Turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 3. As we're going to witness an Old Testament example of Christ having the prize for which he died. An inheritance of nations. Jonah chapter 3. I'm actually going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is the Word of the living God. Then the Word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you as your children, and we come to you as those who are only permitted to come to you through your Son, Jesus, the one true mediator between you and mankind. And we thank you even for this awesome word that we have just heard together and for the awesome privilege that you have given to us of hearing your voice. What Nineveh received a glimpse of, we have a much clearer understanding of. For we have the entirety of your word even written before us here this morning. And so we thank you for your mercy in speaking to us. And we ask you, Father, that you would, on the basis of your Son's work, forgive us of our sins. That you would humble us this morning as we hear your word and seek to understand what you would have for us. Our confidence rests not in ourselves, but in your Son. And we see your wisdom from above in your word, and we ask you, as you have told us to ask you, that you would indeed give us more wisdom. Wisdom from above that we might even be examples to the nations around us 
examples of those who believe and repent and continue to do so. Examples of your radical work of conversion. And so as your children, we knock this morning and we, we ask and we seek your face. And we knock even asking that you would begin to revive us this morning here. These people sitting right here, right now, that you would revive us according to your word. And that you would grant an outpouring of your spirit that we might see in our days a revival such as happened even in Nineveh. Give us an expectancy. Increase our faith, we ask. That we would be a people who would endure in this work of proclamation. We ask this not for our own glory, but because we believe it would bring much glory to you, the triune God, that it would exalt your Son and the power of your Spirit to do that, even this morning. And we pray that as your word is preached by our brother Pastor Clinton High River, that you would do the same thing down there, that there would be people who would be struck, cut to the heart by your word this morning. And for our brother Pastor Gavin, even as he's been teaching and preaching this past weekend down in Indianapolis, we pray that the word as it's been taught would have a good effect on the people there, that it would bear much fruit. We thank you for the word as it continues to go out from here and and the many other churches around the city of Calgary. We ask that you would keep your people faithful to these things. As we think of the needs closer to home, we do praise you for your gracious protection of us over the last two years for protecting the unity of this church. We thank you even for your gracious protection of our brother Glenn Moore this past week in protecting him through his accident and giving him the the care that he needs. We pray, Lord, that you would give a swift recovery and that you would meet his needs, give him encouragement through your word. We thank you even for his example of boldness in sharing the gospel and may it be that we would share in that same zeal. We praise you as well for the successful surgery of our sister, Katie Ehrenholtz. We thank you for even the example of sacrificial love from her sister who donated a kidney. And we, we thank you that there are these technologies that by your grace you have allowed men to create that we might have longer, more enjoyable lives, and we we praise you just even for these gifts to us. These are undeserved mercies. And so we ask, too, that Katie would continue to heal and that you would give her renewed strength in the days ahead and and grant to Tim strength to care for her as well. And, of course, there are so many other needs, those struggling with finances, fears, conflicts, even doubts, doubting your word. I pray, Lord, that you would meet the needs of your people even this week in ways that are beyond even our ability to anticipate. And we thank you for the fruitful time of the the ladies' retreat here over the last couple of days. And we pray that as the word has been taught there as well, that they would have good fruit that would be produced from it, that the seed sown would produce much good fruit to your glory. 
And now, we pray that you would get a hold of us through your word this morning, that you would humble us even as you humbled the king of Nineveh, that you would keep a guard over the door of my mouth that I might not sin against you in speaking what is false, but that I would proclaim the message that you have told us, the good news. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'd like to do a, a little bit of a biographical sketch this morning. I'd like you to meet your brother in the Lord, the king of Nineveh. I mean, just those words, you think about it. Your brother in the Lord, the king of Nineveh. We'll call him Asher Dan the Third. Scholars don't know who the king of Nineveh was during this time when Jonah preached. Some believe it was a king named Asherdan III, and so for the sake of argument, we'll go with him this morning. So meet your brother Asherdan III. I imagine maybe his biography might sound something like this. He was born into a well-to-do family in Nineveh. He was trained by the best and brightest, the Syrian tutors. He worked his way up the political ladder. As early as he could remember, the king of Nineveh was trained in the newest and most effective techniques of Semitic warfare. He learned the art of extracting critical information and coercing surrender by dismembering and even disemboweling prisoners of war. He had a wide circle of friends, but you knew not to mess with Asher Dan because he had a bit of a violent streak to him. His temper would quickly flare up. Well, being in this elite class, he eventually did work his way up the ladder and he landed a position as king of this region of Nineveh, a region that spanned about three days' journey if you were to walk it. He ruled with an iron fist. Sometimes he treated his own citizens like his enemies as if, if, they, if they ever dared to disagree with his opinions. He experienced seasons of success and popularity in Nineveh. But like any politician, there were also times of enduring problems and pushback. He dealt with plagues that ripped through the city, economic downturns, opposing forces, both those within his own city and from enemy nations. And to assist his public image, Asher Dan thought it wise to surround himself by a bunch of yes-men, noblemen as they called them, who for fear of their lives did whatever Asher Dan demanded of them. Well, the king of Nineveh, he was a married man, but he was not a family man. He had many wives. And besides that, he didn't have much time for his family. He was busy making sure that Nineveh remained prosperous and stable. He was a religious man, a pluralist at heart. He worshipped many gods. He would make the regular sacrifices to all the different gods of the Assyrian people, making sure to do the right thing, you know, to try to keep the gods happy with him. He was a religious man. And he was also a zealous man and a proud man. And he wanted his legacy to be that Nineveh was known as the most prosperous, the most aggressive, and the most progressive city in the Assyrian Empire. He was doing all that he could to ensure that it happened, and it was happening. Nineveh was a city full of violence. It was a city booming with trade and commerce, but much of that trade and commerce came at the hands of People who were being treated unjustly, lying, thieving, cheating. 
and all sorts of immorality. The saying was common in Nineveh, what happens in Nineveh stays in Nineveh. Now, one scorching day in the middle of June, as Asher Dan was glancing over his schedule for the day, one of his yes-men barreled into the room unannounced and uninvited, gasping for breath as though he had just sprinted halfway across the city of Nineveh. And the short-fused king of Nineveh was furious. How dare you walk in here unannounced? And as he ordered the guard to go deal with the man, according to the Assyrian way, the nobleman cried out, You've got to hear him. You've got to hear him. Hear who? Asherdan replied, The prophet. What prophet? The prophet from Israel. A man who calls himself Jonah. And he says that he has a message from the Lord, the God of Israel. A warning. Now, it was not the first time that a prophet had rolled into Nineveh. In fact, Nineveh had their own prophets, seers, fortune tellers. And besides, Asherdan, as a king, was far too busy politicking and schmoozing to listen to some random prophet, especially from Israel. I don't have time for him today, the king responded. Put him in the calendar, pencil him in, you know, sometime next month. Maybe he'll just leave us alone, as most of them do. He's probably just looking for some money. He's looking for a following. He's probably one of those hucksters. But the nobleman replied, but that will be too late, O king. That will be too late. What do you mean it will be too late, the king chirped back. Well, it will be yesterday's news by then, the nobleman answered. And growing increasingly impatient, Asherdan retorted, Why in the world should I listen to this man? I've heard these prophets before, and their messages all sound the same. And most times, they don't even come true. I don't have time for this stuff. But with a note of seriousness, the king's nobleman stated very bluntly, I think you need to take a stroll through the city right now. What do you mean? What's going on? Well, this man, this Jonah, he's only been here one day. One day. And he's going from town square to town square, and he preaches just this one very simple message. It's, it's one sentence. It takes him all of five seconds to say it. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And you know what? The people believe him. And some of them are even fasting. They're calling out to the Lord. Hearing this, Asherdan's frustration quickly turned to intrigue. He began to pace the room. Could it be true? He wondered. Asherdan tried to go about his work that day. He had lots to do. But the warning kept ringing in his, in his ears. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And so he decided to actually go for a stroll through the city. And sure enough, what he saw there was people putting on sackcloth and sitting in ashes. And as he looked at them in the eyes, what he saw was fear. The fear of men and women as though they knew that soon they would be overwhelmed by an unstoppable force. And the word kept coming back to him, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Asher had heard stories and rumors about the God of Israel. He had heard how hundreds of years before he had destroyed the then most powerful nation in the world, Egypt, by drowning their entire army 
and that he had brought this people Israel safely through the Red Sea, or so the story went. He had heard rumors about Jericho and how it fell in a day and how the nations in Canaan were wiped out by the seemingly powerless band of people, Israel. He had heard about the swift justice of God, of the God of Israel. He also, though, had heard some rumors that this God was also slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that he was faithful to his people and willing to forgive any who would turn to him. As he mused on these things, Jonah's word shook him to the core. At the time, he couldn't understand what was happening. He couldn't understand what was going on in his mind, but something clicked. Something changed. He felt helpless. He felt exposed before the eyes of God. He even felt ashamed and guilty, as though he deserved what was coming. He believed God, and he hoped that God might just turn from his anger. And so he arose from his throne and removed his robe and covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And then he issued this proclamation. The entire city, and let's make sure we get the animals involved too because we're all polluted. Everything's polluted. Everybody needs to fast and call out to the Lord and turn from their evil ways. Perhaps, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Well, as day 39 turned into day 40, that city which was usually so full of activity lay as silent as a grave. What's going to happen? Day 40 arrives, and it passes like any other day. Nineveh was still standing. Well, maybe, maybe our timing's off, people wondered. Day 41, 42, day 50, day 60, day 100, and Nineveh is still standing. And the king and the people of Nineveh now know, they know that what they hoped would be true is true. The God of Israel does, in fact, relent if we repent. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And so the king of Nineveh, your brother and my brother, the king who once longed for his legacy to be that Nineveh was known as the most aggressive and progressive city in Assyria, now changed the official slogan of the city to this, welcome to new Nineveh the city of sinners saved by the grace of God. Well, I've obviously added some details there, but the core of the story is true. Because the king of Nineveh believed and called upon the Lord, someday, actually, you and I, we get to go ask the king of Nineveh to fill in the details of his testimony. Do you believe that? That actually the king of Nineveh and, they, and these Ninevites, this generation of Ninevites who received the word of the Lord, they're actually part of the inheritance of nations that Christ came to purchase by his own blood. 
You can ask the king of Nineveh. I'm, I'm looking forward to asking the king of Nineveh what all went on there. We get some details here in Jonah 3, but someday we get the full story. You see, Jonah 3 is another showcase of God's willingness and his power to save the ungodly who are destined for destruction. Reminding us once again of that central truth of the book of Jonah, salvation belongs to the Lord. What we see take place in Nineveh is God converting these old Ninevites in love with their sin, ignoring God, worshiping all sorts of false gods. God converting old Ninevites into new Ninevites for his glory. And because that's true, because that's what happened, you and I will be celebrating the Lord's great salvation for eternity alongside these Ninevites, along with the other men and women of faith like Abraham and Isaac and Moses and David and Paul and Peter. And the list goes on and on and on. See, as he did then, whenever God saves today, he makes old people into new people. And those new people are marked by a new posture towards him and before him. The new people whom God saves are marked by a new posture towards God as well as before him. See, the revival that broke out here in Nineveh is another exhibition It's a display of what Jesus said he came to do. I came not to call the righteous, but the unrighteous to repentance. And it's an example of God making good on his promise to, in fact, draw these nations to himself, to bring them into his covenant blessing. Even as Pastor Paul was talking here in Sunday school, global Christian history. This is just a little bit of a foretaste of heaven. And so as we consider old Nineveh made new by the Lord, what I want us to consider this morning are the three new postures that God's new people have. Three new postures that God's new people have. And I want to do this for two main reasons. First, to remind us of the centrality of conversion to the gospel. To remind us of the centrality of of conversion. What is Christ doing in the world right now? He is converting sinners. He is turning them from one way of life to a different way. And therefore, we need to understand this. We need to remember the centrality of conversion because it actually then gets to the core of our mission. We're not just aiming for people to make decisions and then go about their lives as though nothing changed. No, when God gets a hold of people, they're new. We're not calling people just to agree with God, but to turn to the Lord. The second reason why I want to look at these three postures is that I hope true believers will go away with great confidence this morning. It's actually a passage that gives us great confidence, great assurance of our pardon, assurance of the position that we enjoy before God in Christ So that's the reasons why I want to consider these postures this morning. And the first distinctive posture that we see is this. That God's new people, these new Ninevites, 
have a new posture of belief in God's word. A new posture of belief in God's word. See, Jonah 3 begins with this great reset moment. And there's my little political message of the day. We'll leave that. That's, that's all you're getting for politics. But it's a great reset moment. After failing in round one, back in chapter one, God now gives Jonah another opportunity, a second opportunity to hear his word and to obey it. So after being vomited out on dry land, God speaks to Jonah just as he did back in chapter one. Sounds basically the exact same as the first few verses of chapter 1. Then the word of the Lord, you see that there, verse 1, came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Now, as we see in the book of Jonah, Jonah's a man that displays failure all over the place, doesn't he? He's not really exemplary in many things. But he is exemplary here. This is the proper response. And in fact, more than exemplary, I think he's a great encouragement. This is a great encouragement that God uses crooked sticks. God uses fickle people. He uses sinful people. See, your past disobedience does not determine your usefulness in God's global purposes in the present. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. If it's a matter of having perfect people engaged in ministering the word, then we're all disqualified. But we see here that God doesn't kick Jonah to the curb. God uses all sorts of crooked sticks in his service so that as the word goes forth and sinners are converted, it's evident that salvation belongs to Not to some innovation or ability for us to engineer it, but because it belongs to him and him alone. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Right? That's why you're weak. That's why you think, I wish I had a different mind. I wish I was smarter. I wish I was better at this or that or more and more holy. It's not that those are wrong aspirations, but it's a reminder that the Lord intentionally uses all sorts of crooked sticks to accomplish his perfect purposes. I'm reminded here of a parallel passage in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. I don't think you can read Jonah 3 without seeing Some parallels here between the day of Pentecost. You have this mass turning to the Lord in Jonah chapter 3. In Acts chapter 2, you'll remember, on the day of Pentecost, there's this mass turning to the Lord. People from all over, all over these Gentile regions being cut to the heart. And the amazing thing is that just as he does here, once again, the Lord uses a very imperfect instrument to accomplish his wonderful purposes. The Apostle Peter. Peter, the man who always sticks his foot in his mouth, the man who denied Jesus three times, and yet Peter is the instrument that God uses to preach and point people to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And you know what? 
the word of God cut those people to the heart, and 3,000 people, 3,000 souls were added to their number that day. So Christian, maybe you're thinking that your past or your present sins mean that you're nothing more now than a bench warmer. Like, "Ah, I'm kind of on the B team. I just, I play the bench. Maybe you've been in the counseling room a little bit more than you've thought, anticipated, even wanted over the last few weeks or years. And you're thinking to yourself, I guess I'm just one of those people. I just need help. I'm of no use of actually serving others. It's wrong. It's a wrong view of God's grace. God uses imperfect instruments to accomplish his perfect purposes, even in delivering the word, which would then bring about revival. You see, Jonah's posture towards God's word has fundamentally changed, at least for now. Unlike the first time Jonah instructed God instructed Jonah to go the second time. He obeys, and when he does, revival breaks out. And you see very clearly there, friends, another word of encouragement to you and an exhortation is that this new posture of believing God's word actually lends itself then to proclaiming God's word, proclaiming his word. You see, if we're going to see Sinners come to faith, whether in droves like it was in Nineveh, or in dribbles, as is often the case. Then we, as Christians, must resolve today to speak what God has said. And then to wait expectantly for Him to do what only He can do. It's like the parable of the soils. The the seed. right? The person goes out there and, and sows it. But who gives the growth? Well, it's God. And yet he does so through the proclamation of the word. Hear this clearly. Our job as Christians, as those who are called then to go, make disciples of all nations, to speak the word, to teach everything that Christ has commanded, our job is not to manufacture responses, but it is to minister the word. It's not to manufacture responses, but to minister the word. See, that's the difference between revival and revivalism. Revival happens as the word is preached week in, week out. As the word is taught to your children day in, day out. Revival happens through the regular means and God does extraordinary things in his own timing, bringing about conversion. Revivalism is when people try to manufacture engineer their own responses, whether through emotional manipulation or through some other technique. And the church, churches out there, are full of examples of people trying to manufacture these responses. Let's get them in here. Let's try to get some decisions for Jesus. Revival versus revivalism. Our job is not to manufacture responses, but to minister the word. And that's exactly then why we put a premium on the word of God in all the ministries that are happening here. That's why we preach the word. Why we believe that the central calling of Christian ministry is to speak the word, to speak it. And we do so because we have great confidence in it. We have great confidence in it based on even what we see happening here in Jonah 3. A one-sentence sermon 
a one-sentence sermon. And the amazing thing is, is this sermon doesn't even really have much of the gospel in it. It's just a warning of judgment. And yet, it is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And one sentence of the Word of God brings a nation to their knees. That's why we preach the Word. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why the best thing that you can do in your home, if you want to see your children made new, is to unleash the Word. The Word. By an open statement of the truth. You see, Jonah wanted the Lord to strike Nineveh with the sword of steel, but instead God mercifully struck the hearts of the people with the sword of the Spirit. And it's a sharp sword. God's Word is a sharp sword. Hebrews 4, verse 12, it is living and active. These aren't just mere words on a page. They're living words. They're active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We unleash the word. God does what only God can do. So friends, do you have that kind of belief in the power of God's word? If we do, then we're not going to be distracted and attracted to all sorts of these new church growth or you know, missionary growth endeavors. Here's the quickest way to get some converts. Here's the quickest way to grow your church. Baloney. Baloney. The quickest way to grow your church is to preach the word. See, Jonah isn't the only person, though, who has a new confidence and belief in God's word. The Ninevites do as well. You see there in verse 5, as Jonah preaches this word, it says, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't dismiss God's word as myth or some piece of religious propaganda. In fact, when they heard Jonah call out, it says that the people believed God. Did you notice that? They believed God. It was a simple response of faith, but it was exemplary in its simplicity. To believe God's word is to believe God. To believe God's word is to believe God, and to believe God means believing his word. So we see that new people have a new posture towards the word. We obey it. We speak it because we believe that these are the words that give life. And we take God at his word. Because we believe these actually to be God's words and therefore true. Every word of them. Do you want to know if you're new? If you're one of these new kind of Ninevites? Then ask yourself, what's my posture towards God's word? What's your posture towards God's word? Is it one of belief? Of acceptance? Do you take God at his word? Even the hard sayings? I mean, it's a hard saying... Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Are we going to take those words too? The warnings of judgment as well as the promises of life? Every bit of it. So that's the first posture of those who are new is that there's a posture of believing God's word and through that belief then unleashing it with great confidence that it will do and accomplish what God intends. The second distinctive posture of these new Ninevites is this. 
There's a posture of turning from their sin. A posture of turning from their sin. And such is the case for all true Christians. We're marked by a new posture of turning from the sin. You know, notice there, not only did the people of Nineveh believe God, it says in the second part of verse 5, they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. It was this public display of their contrition, of their remorse for their sin, of their lament towards God. They had been convicted. And of course, it is the Spirit, Jesus says in John 16, 8, who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. So what we're seeing here is actually a work in the Old Testament of the Spirit convicting these Ninevites, even the Ninevite king, of sin and righteousness and judgment. He had cut them to the heart. And so they were fasting and putting on sackcloth. Now, it's interesting here that these Ninevites began fasting because fasting is actually a distinctive Jewish response. I don't think there's any other places where in the Assyrian literature where it talks about fasting, but you look all over the Old Testament, it talks about fasting as a response to God. So it could possibly indicate that maybe these Ninevites had, either through Jonah or maybe through some other prophets, in a roundabout way, heard some more things about the God of Israel, had, had received some other information about his will for them. But whatever the case, their posture is what we need to focus on because new people are marked by a new posture of turning from sin. And it wasn't just the people. Literally, the king of Nineveh's posture towards the Lord changes. You see that? In verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh. It's interesting, that word reached. It's the same word that sometimes is translated elsewhere as struck or pierced. The word reached, and when it reached him, it struck him. It struck the king of Nineveh. And what happened in response? He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. See, as he was confronted with his sin and the spiritual danger that he was in, that God's judgment was imminent, he arose. He got up from his throne and he actually went low before the Lord. Now, that's the posture of a true Christian. And I would say that's a posture also of a true leader. A true leader. Getting off the throne and going low because we lament the ugliness of our sin against God. So husbands and fathers and pastors, those in leadership, good leadership includes this posture. It is fundamentally marked by this posture of humility before God, of this intense intolerance towards your sin. And then it urges others to follow suit. That's what leadership looks like. It's leadership in humility, in confession, in repentance. I mean, it's an amazing thing, this story. It's an amazing thing. The Word of God doing what only God can do. The king of Nineveh, maybe this Asher Dan III, moved so quickly to repentance with such little information, reminding us again salvation belongs to the Lord. I mean, it would be like the mayor of the city of Calgary and all the city councilors tomorrow, you know, maybe, maybe you've written a letter to your 
politicians over the last two years. There lots of letters written. Maybe you've included some scripture in there. And maybe it's this kind of obscure scripture passage and you think, I don't, I don't see how they can maybe get converted from that. But they read it and they come across it and the word strikes them and in an instant, they're thinking, we're in danger. God's against us. We must call out to him. Now if we think about what's happening here, it actually raises a bit of an interesting question too. The question is this, would that be a proper use of their authority to enforce the worship of God? I think it's an appropriate question to ask. It's interesting because that's actually part of the discussion that's happening. Nowadays, it's been reignited over the last couple of years. The role, limits of governing authorities in implementing God's law. God's law does command that we worship him. God commands that people everywhere repent. Acts 17. But do political authorities have the authority to mandate this kind of response from the citizens or not? Can they coerce? Can they enforce the true worship of God? Let me just mention a couple points. First, we have as a church, and we should keep praying that we see this kind of humility in our leaders. That we see this kind of turning to the Lord. That's actually what we pray for. One of the things that struck me before I even became a member at Calvary Grace, just kind of some outside connections and hearing about Calvary Grace, one of the things that struck me was their endurance in praying for revival, even for their leaders. These are good things to pray for. And if this kind of humbling happened in City Hall, I hope we would celebrate with the angels in heaven over one lost soul coming to believe. And we would expect that if God converted these leaders, that they would do their job with these new postures of belief and confidence in his word, with an eagerness to walk in a new manner of life. But the second thing we need to understand here very clearly, and I think it actually makes an important point for this text is that you can't engineer true repentance through human decrees. You can't engineer true repentance through human decrees. The government can mandate and enforce outward actions, but they cannot change the heart. They can't. And what God is fundamentally after here is not just these outward actions. These outward actions of fasting and putting on sackcloth even devoting the animals to these kinds of things, these things are an indication of those who have been cut to the heart. See, God doesn't care about rent garments, but torn hearts. As he says in Joel chapter 2, verse 12 and 13, speaking to the people of God, God's people, his covenant people, the Lord says, return to me with all your heart, with fasting with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. So that's what the Lord is after, your heart, that it would be torn, that it would hate sin, that it would hate it, that it would turn from it, that it would have this intense intolerance towards it. Why? Because we recognize that these are sins for which Christ died. See, when we understand the price that was paid for our sin, when we understand the nature of our sin against the holy God, and the more and more we grow to understand these things, the more abhorrent our sin ought to become to us. 
But notice, friends, even though there's a proper mourning over sin, there's, there's ought to be an actual turning from sin. There's an actual turning of sin that is required, turning from sin. Though repentance is a matter of the heart, there's a change that takes place in one's actions. The people were called by the king not only to fast and to give these outward displays of their inward change, but he says there in verse 8, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. That's a great definition of what it means to repent. It means to turn. To turn from evil ways, violent ways, ways filled with injustice, injustice contrary to God's word, and to turn to the Lord. See, the adulterers need to turn from their adultery. There's, there's lots of people I've, I've talked to that they'll talk, oh, yeah, I'm repenting and, and God knows my heart. Yeah, God knows your heart, and it's a matter of the heart for sure. But actually, repentance is displayed in a turning from evil things, evil ways, evil patterns of life. The adulterer needs to turn from their adultery. The thieves had to turn from their stealing. The liars need to turn from their lying. Abusers needed to turn from their abusing, and on and on and on. See, repentance is marked by this kind of turning, this change. So what sins... What sins then, being honest before God, what sins do you need to turn from? Maybe you're holding on to them. You're thinking, ah, you know what, the Lord just cares about my heart. He cares about my heart. Yes, he does. But if your heart has been changed, if it has been torn, then there is going to be a turning. There's going to be a change of direction. Do you want to know if you're a new Ninevite? Ask yourself, how am I responding to my sin even when somebody like a Jonah, confronts me. Are you humble, broken, and do you exhibit a pattern in your life, not perfection, but a pattern of turning from sin? God's new people have a new posture of turning from sin. Third, and finally, you see that God's new people have a new posture of confidence before God. They believe God's word, they turn from their sin, but there's also this posture of confidence that we need to see. As I said right at the very beginning, I want you, because I believe this text intends for us in the fullness of God's revelation to give us great confidence before God. Look with me there at verse 9. As the king gives these instructions to his people, he says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? It doesn't sound like a, a note of confidence, does it? It's kind of like, eh, maybe, I don't know, I hope. But nonetheless, it is a true response of faith. The king and the people called out to the Lord in hope that he would spare them from judgment that he would keep them from perishing. It's actually the same word, uh, same wording that is used in Joel chapter 2. We were just there, Joel chapter 2 verse 14, where the prophet Joel summons the people of Israel to repent. And he says in Joel 2 verse 14, return 
to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. We've heard this, right? Exodus 34, Jonah 4, we're going to see it next time. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him? Who knows? Well, now the king of Nineveh and these Ninevites know. They know. Now, what's interesting is these Ninevites had to wait for 40 days to figure that out. As I said, you can imagine them there on, you know, days 1 through 39, thinking, I hope. I mean, we've heard these things. We're casting ourselves on on the mercy of God. I hope he delivers us. I hope he spares us. But day 40 arrives, and it passes, and the Ninevites move from hoping to knowing. A confidence. Ah, yes, God does spare. He does relent if we repent. And they see that then God's steadfast love is even for sinners like them, for evil and wicked people, that, that they are not too far from God's grace, that he is very patient with them. Even these once unbelieving, sin-loving, idolatrous, violent people, he is now made into his own people. See, their faith was small, but it was directed at the proper object. That is, the God who promises to relent from his anger. The God who is patient. The God who is merciful, who spares sinners from judgment. If they will repent... Now, on the surface, Jonah 3 looks, it kind of focuses on this radical conversion of the Ninevites. It seems to be the focal point, but as has been the case throughout the book of Jonah, God's actions actually take center stage in Jonah 3. There's this response of faith from the Ninevites, but notice in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Friends, it's marvelous, and we marvel at this revival in Nineveh, not because Nineveh was so clever, not certainly because they were deserving, but because they were so godless and helpless, and yet, with that mustard seed-sized faith, as they exercised that God turned and did not do to them as he said he would. See how deep and wide the mercy of God is towards sinners. Now there's, I, I know that there's some theology nerds, and I can call you nerds because I'm a theology nerd too. There's some theology nerds in here who are looking at this, scratching their heads, and like, what's he going to say about God relenting? Right? God changed his mind, didn't he? He he changed his mind. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. In fact, some translations say God repented. It's actually the same word that's used back in, uh, when it talks in verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way. They turned. It's actually a very practical question. You seek to understand, does God actually change? We need to get at this because I think this is actually where our hope 
is rooted precisely in the fact that he does not change. Right? Because if God changes his mind, how can you and I know that we have eternal life today and tomorrow? Uh, if God changes his mind and, and we can't trust his word, you know, he goes back on his word, how can you and I know that we won't be unconverted as quickly as we were converted? How can I know that God will not unlove me today and return to being angry because of my sins towards him today? It's actually a very practical question that gets at the heart of our confidence before him. You see, friends, the, the Ninevites, they had to wait until the promised day of judgment passed to have the assurance that God was no longer furious towards them. They had to wait all those 40 days. But actually, you and I can know. That's the amazing thing about the Christian faith, is that you can know you can walk out of here today with full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. Assurance that you are no longer under God's just judgment. That God is no longer fiercely angry towards you. That you are no longer perishing but have eternal life. You can know that. You can know it. Why? Precisely because God does not change. Precisely because God does not change. You see, the irony of this passage is that the emphasis is exactly in the opposite direction of what initially meets the eye. It seems like God is one who changes his mind and therefore can't be trusted. But in fact, God relents from his anger precisely because he has determined and promised it that he would do that. That he actually turns if people repent. That's part of his will. His will is that if you turn, I'll relent. We've got to look at Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7, where the Lord promises and says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of that disaster that I intended to do to it. That's a promise. See, our confidence that God is not going to turn back on us, that he's not going to undo the verdict, that he's not going to change our position before him as quickly as he converted us to Christ, is because God remains the same and he has determined and said, and promised, if you turn, I'll relent. It's very simple. We don't need to complicate it more than it is. You turn, God relents. He relents. See, Nineveh is made new, and you and I are made new because God actually remains the same patient merciful, forgiving God that he has been and always will be. You can know that you have forgiveness of your sins today because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13. And his blood, therefore, is a sufficient payment for your sins yesterday, 
and today and forever. And that his resurrection is sufficient to give you life yesterday and today and forever. Really, the ground of our confidence is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See, your confidence rests on God's own determination to save his people who repent. Let me just offer two final words, brief words of application. First is this, a clarification that I want to make for parents. A clarification I want to make for parents. As we consider the newness of the Christian, as we consider the new posture that God works in his people when he saves them, I think I want to make a clarification for the parents, and it's this. It's good. Our desire as parents is that we want to see our kids repent. We want to see them come to have this simple childlike faith. And we want to encourage that. They don't have to have full mastery of the Bible in order to be a Christian. It's simple confidence in Christ and what he has done. What they need is a posture of humility. A posture of confidence that Jesus is enough. And so we don't want to squelch the assurance of pardon. When we're seeing these signs of faith in children, we want to encourage it. Keep going. Keep believing. But friends, neither do we want to give false assurances. This is actually one of the dangers of, of growing up in a Christian home. So you can kind of just coast along and, well, I guess mom and dad believe that and everybody else around me is believing that. No, 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 friends. When God saves, he makes people new. And so it's good then. It's proper for us to examine and to take a look at, has the posture of my child changed? Has it changed towards God's word? Has it changed towards their sin? Do they, they don't love their sin as much as they used to. Of course they're not going to be perfect. Of course they're going to sin. You sin, I sin. But is their posture changing? Most of all, is their posture one of confidence in Christ's work. So that's an appeal to parents just to be thinking then about kind of examining your children and, and looking at these things. Celebrate the evidences of grace that are there and then keep your eyes peeled for ways that you can encourage them, that you might give them even a reminder that they can have confidence before the Lord. The second and final application is this, an appeal to the old Ninevites. I want to make an appeal to the old Ninevites. In view of all that we've read, those of you who are still like old, unrepentant Nineveh, you need to hear the warning. You need to hear the warning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We've been here before, speaking of this sign of Jonah. Now, maybe you're thinking, okay, yeah, well, he's talking about me as an old Ninevite, but that, I don't think that's a really fair assessment. You know, Nineveh, violent people, evil people, engaged in all sorts of immorality. I'm a pretty clean, conservative type of person. You know, I, 
I check off the conservative box when I vote. Uh, I'm pro-life. Uh, I'm, I'm actually pro-private property. I'm a good neighbor. I'm faithful to my wife. Okay? Matthew 12, beginning in verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees, you know who the Pharisees are, right? These are the, these are the clean, conservative people of society. You, you and I would probably agree with them on all manner of morality. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. <laughs> Jesus is calling them evil. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus identifies all people outside of Christ as evil and unbelieving. And in fact, he says the Ninevites, the Ninevites are going to rise up. For those who have heard the word, maybe even raised in Christian circles, the Ninevites, who had far less knowledge than we do, they didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't know all that he had accomplished. They didn't know that he had been raised from the dead. And yet they believed. And these very people are going to rise up at the judgment and they're going to say, why didn't you believe? Right? Why didn't you believe? You have a man that walked out of the grave. If we would have known that, we would have been even quicker. And so the appeal then to you, whether you're unbelieving and full of violence, or maybe your hands are clean and you're you're real conservative. The appeal is this. If you are not believing in Christ, you are in serious danger of perishing. You are still under judgment. But, if you repent, God will relent and you can know today, right now, you can know today that you have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. So Father, I pray that you would give life to those who need it, that you would move those who are unbelieving to belief, and that those who have been made new would stand with full confidence before you, knowing that our sins have been forgiven because Christ has taken them upon himself. And that's all been verified by him being raised from the dead. Give us confidence and hope in your word, even as we consider your everlasting, faithful love towards your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just a reminder that there's a newcomer's lunch right after the service downstairs in the fellowship hall. So please make sure you go to that if you're a newcomer. In conclusion, let me read this benediction from 1 John chapter 5. As we think of the question, who knows? Well, we know. 
You can know. 1 John 5, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Asking according to his will, his will is that you would repent. And if you ask for life, he'll give it to you and you can know that you have life. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ and know today that you have eternal life. Go in peace. You're dismissed.